You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. What makes you itch? What sort of a situation would you like? Let's suppose I do this often in vocational guidance of students. They come to me and say, well, uh, we're getting out of college and we haven't the faintest idea what we want to do. So I always ask the question, what would you like to do if money were no object? How would you really enjoy spending your life? Well, it's so amazing as a result of our kind of educational system, crowds of students say, well, We'd like to be painters, we'd like to be poets, we'd like to be writers, but as everybody knows, you can't earn any money that way. Or another person says, well, I'd like to live an out-of-doors life and ride horses. I say, do you want to teach in a riding school? Uh, Let's go through with it. What do you want to do? When we finally got down to something which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, you do that. And uh, forget the money. Uh, because if you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you will spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living, that is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is, you can eventually turn it, uh, you could eventually become a master of it. It's the only way to become a master of something, to be really with it. And then you'll be able to get a good fee for whatever it is. So uh, don't, don't worry too much. Uh, that's, uh, everybody's, uh, somebody's interested in everything. And anything you could be interested in, you'll find others who are. But it's absolutely stupid to spend your time doing things you don't like in order to go on spending things you don't like and doing things you don't like and to teach your children to follow in the same track. See, what we're doing is we're bringing up children and educating them to live the same sort of lives we're living in order that they may justify themselves and find satisfaction in life by bringing up their children to bring up their children to do the same thing so it's all wretch and no vomit. It never gets there. And so, therefore, it's so important to consider this question, what do I desire? And a man who is in poverty, I look upon not as a criminal in himself, so much as the victim of a crime for which others are responsible. If a man chooses to be poor, he commits no crime in being poor. It's certainly a crime to force poverty on others. And it seems to me clear that the great majority of those who suffer from poverty are poor not from their own particular faults, but because of conditions imposed by society at large. Therefore, I hold that poverty is a crime 
not an individual crime, but a social crime, a crime for which we all are responsible. There's no natural reason why we should not all be rich, in the sense not of having more than each other, but in the sense of all having enough to completely satisfy all physical wants. Of all having enough to get such an easy living that we could develop the better part of humanity. There is enough and to spare. The trouble is that in this mad struggle, we trample in the mire what has been provided in sufficiency for us all. Trample it in the mire while we tear and rend each other. Think for a moment how it would strike a rational being who had never been on the earth before if such an intelligence could come down and you were to explain to him how we live on earth, how houses and food and clothing and all the many things we need were all produced by work. Would he not think that the working people would be the people who lived in the finest houses and had most of everything that work produces. Yet, whether you took him to London or... Yet, whether you took him to London or Paris or New York or even to Burlington, he would find that those called the working people were the people who live in the poorest houses. Did you ever think of the utter absurdity and strangeness of the fact that all over the civilized world, the working classes are the poor classes? Go into any city in the world and get into a cab and ask the man to drive you where the working people live. He won't take you to where the fine houses are. He will take you, on the contrary, into the squalid quarters, the poorer quarters. Did you ever think how curious that is? Why is it that despite vast increases in wealth and great advances in technology, that one of our most basic needs, shelter, remains one, a bigger burden on our means than ever before? The UK, along with many other advanced economies, is facing a major housing affordability crisis. Average house prices are up to nine times higher than average incomes, and in London, they're up to 20 times higher. An entire generation finds itself priced out of the market, struggling to make ends meet in the face of eye-watering rents. Levels of home ownership have been falling rapidly for 15 years, particularly among young people, and homelessness is on the rise. How did we get here? A popular explanation is that we're just simply not building enough new houses. And this is certainly an important part of the answer but it's far from the whole story. At the root of the problem lies something that very few people actually talk about. 
And that's the role that land plays in our economy. I realize this may sound a little bit strange. Land often conjures up images of farming and agriculture or of pre-industrial societies from many centuries ago. You may well be wondering, why should we still be caring about land in the 21st century in a world of the internet, smartphones and space travel? To find out why, we need to cover a little bit of history, a little bit of economics, and a little bit about power and the law. It's easy to forget, but the idea that land can be owned as private property is actually quite new. For most of human history, land couldn't be owned. It was a common shared resource, and its use was governed according to custom and ties of social obligation. But beginning in 16th century England, this all began to change. Common shared land was transformed into private tradable property through a process known as enclosure. This development was revolutionary, but the transformation was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it gave birth to modern capitalism and the explosion in wealth, technological advancement and life expectancy that followed. It gave birth to modern industry, modern finance, and even parliamentary democracy. But on the other hand, it caused mass dispossession and dislocation. By its very nature, granting exclusive rights over what was previously a shared resource to one group of people means taking away the rights of others. Millions of people were driven off the land, often violently, and those who were allowed to stay found that they now had to pay rent to landowners to access what they could previously get for free. Landowners became the gatekeepers to an essential natural resource. And they were able to extract income from society based purely on the basis of the ownership of this resource, unrelated to any work or effort. And over time, as the economy developed and cities began to emerge and wages increased, land became more valuable. Landowners were able to absorb much of the new value that was being created in the dynamic capitalist economy in the form of higher rents. 400 years ago, an acre of land in Mayfair, central London, would have been worth very little when it looked much like what you see on the screen, empty fields and marshland. But today, Mayfair looks like this. And just a square foot of land will cost you £5,000. An acre will cost you many tens of millions. If the owner of the plot of land in Mayfair 400 years ago fell asleep and woke up today, they'd find themselves to be a multi-millionaire. Now, this wealth wouldn't have been the result of the efforts of, of the landowner. They'd been asleep the whole time. Instead, it reflects the progress of society as a whole. As the former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill once said, roads are made, streets are made, services are improved, electric light turns night into day, water is brought from reservoirs 100 miles off in the mountains, and all the while the landlord sits still. The value of land is socially created, the activities of everyone in a community enhances the value of it by making the location more desirable. But yet it is landowners who reap some of the benefits. 
And so there is a paradox at the heart of private property and land. On the one hand, it created huge economic progress and wealth. But on the other, it created dispossession and carries with it a sense of economic injustice. This is what I refer to as the paradox of property. Now fast forward to today, and this paradox is alive and well. It just manifests itself in a slightly different way. And that's the housing market. The total value of the housing stock in the UK today is around five and a half trillion pounds. That's about 60% of the entire net wealth of the country. This has increased from just one trillion pounds only 20 years ago. And this astonishing increase of four trillion pounds in just two decades is the result of skyrocketing house prices. And this has been going on for decades. If you were to buy a two-bedroom house here in Totnes back in 1970, it might have cost you around £5,000. If you were to try and buy the exact same property today, you'd find you'd have to spend around £250,000 or more. That's an increase of over 5,000%, far outstripping growth in wages. In fact, in recent years, it's become common for homes to earn more than people. When the price of a property goes up, it's not the bricks and mortar that's becoming more valuable. It's the value of the land that sits underneath. But soaring land values aren't the result of some natural process. They're the result of the rules and the regulations which govern the ownership, trade and use of land. The rules of the game matter. But these rules have very little to do with economics or science, and much more to do with politics and power. And as a result, they varied immensely throughout history. At the end of World War I, taxes on property and large-scale government house-building programmes and tight mortgage regulation kept supply up and house prices under control. But beginning in the 1960s, taxes on property were removed and subsidies for buyers were introduced. The government withdrew from large-scale house-building projects, ending the implicit supply of public land for new homes. Councils were forced to sell off much of the housing stock and prevent it from building more. Mortgage lending was deregulated, unleashing a flood of new credit into the housing market. An ever-increasing supply of credit interacted with a fixed supply of land, fueling a house price boom. And people found they had to take out ever-larger mortgages to get on the housing ladder. And a feedback loop between mortgage lending, house prices, and ever-increasing levels of household debt emerged. The era of the housing boom was born. The normalisation of double-digit house price growth, combined with an expectation that house prices will just keep going up, has fueled demand for houses as financial assets. Whereas 50 years ago, houses were mainly seen simply as places to live. Today, they're often seen as means of accumulating wealth and long-term security in the face of stagnating wages and dwindling pensions. And so the dark side of the land ownership paradox has reasserted itself. For those who own property, rising land values generates a windfall gain, which increases net wealth, provides greater economic security, and enables homeowners to borrow more if they wish, perhaps to buy another property or two. But for those who don't own property, rising land values means higher rents in the rental market and having to save more to afford a deposit for a mortgage, 
both of which leave less money left over to spend on other things. The truth is, the housing ladder is a zero-sum game. While rising house prices make some individuals wealthier, society as a whole is actually no better off because nothing new has been produced. Instead, the wealth that's been amassed from rising house prices has been gained at the expense of the current and the future generations who don't own property and who will see more of their incomes eaten up by higher housing costs. Some of the luckier ones will be saved by the bank of mum and dad as housing wealth is passed on to the next generation in the form of inheritance or gifts. But millions of others will miss out. The paradox of property is back with a vengeance and it's driving our society apart. Our economies become like a version of the monopoly board game. When every time you go around the board, property prices keep increasing and rents get more expensive. This is great if you're a player in the game who owns property. But for the players that don't own property, they quickly find themselves bankrupt and eliminated from the game. It's a little known fact that the original version of the Monopoly board game was called the Landlord's Game. And it was invented by an American radical called Lizzie Maggie. And she invented the game to illustrate the polarizing effects that private property and land has on society. But the original intent of this game has now been long forgotten. So looking ahead to the future, how can we fix this? Can the paradox of property ever be solved? On the one hand, the problem is a curious one. It's essentially that one of our most important resources, land, has become very valuable. Does this have to be a problem? The problem is that the rules of the game are set in such a way that means that some people benefit from this at the expense of others. But given that land is a free gift of nature and its value reflects not the, value, not the input of individual owners but of society and the community as a whole, is this really fair? What if we could rewrite the rules of the game to better balance the harms and the benefits caused by private property and land? Maybe we can learn something from how other parts of the world manage another important resource, oil. In Alaska, each year, the government collects royalties on the extraction of oil. Since the 1970s, a proportion of this revenue has been invested in something called the Alaska Permanent Fund. This is a publicly owned fund tasked with managing the state's oil wealth in the public interest. And each year, something quite remarkable happens. The fund pays out an annual payment, a dividend, to every single citizen in Alaska. This means that all Alaskans get a fair and equal share to the state's natural oil wealth. Now, if this can work for oil, can something similar work for land? This doesn't mean abolishing private property and land like many radicals have argued for over the centuries. The right to own one's own home should be cherished. Instead, it means capturing the uplift in the value of land and using that for public benefit. 
This could be achieved by levying a charge on the value of land to be paid by landowners. In a similar way, the oil companies pay royalties to extract oil. This would form the basis of a new revenue stream collected by the public exchequer. It could be used to pay for public services, which benefit everyone. Or it could be used to reduce taxes on things like income and consumption. Or as in Alaska, more radically, it could be used to pay out a single dividend equally to every single person. Each way, the principle is the same. Capturing the value of land and using it for public benefit. A common inheritance to our most valuable natural resource. By ending the ability of individuals to make large windfalls from land at the expense of others, soaring house prices would be reined in. Homes, whether rented or owned, would return to being simply places to live once again, rather than the appreciating financial assets that they've become. We'd no longer be able to amass this wealth by simply buying property and waiting for land values to go up. Any increase that did arise would benefit everyone. As well as helping to fix a dysfunctional housing market, using the value of land for the common good rather than private gain would help to reduce soaring inequality and alleviate poverty. Property would become a paradox no more. Thank you very much. This isn't my family. None of them are real. Neither is whoever you're talking to. You're not real. You're not real. What? You are? Is any of it real? I mean, look at this. Look at it! A world built on fantasy. Synthetic emotions in the form of pills. Psychological warfare in the form of advertising. Mind-altering chemicals in the form of food. Brainwashing seminars in the form of media. Isolated bubbles in the form of social networks. Real? You want to talk about reality? We haven't lived in anything remotely close to it since the turn of the century. Turned it off, took out the batteries, snacked on a bag of GMOs while we tossed the remnants in the ever-expanding dumpster of the human kingdom. in branded houses, trademarked by corporations built on bipolar numbers, jumping up and down on digital displays, hypnotizing us into the biggest slumber mankind has ever you seen. Have to dig pretty deep, kiddo, before you can find anything real. We live in a kingdom of bullshit, a kingdom you've lived in for far too long. So don't tell me about not being real. I'm no less real than the fucking beef patty in your... As far as you're concerned, Elliot, I am very real. We are all together now, whether you like it or not. We need to turn that thing off. It's time to go home.
Sun inhabited and uncharted. Listen to me. But it looks like a lovely place to spend your David, last days. David, just the monitor is acting as an antenna. It isn't just receiving tachyons. It is taking a possible future and, and making it's it amplifying like, it, transmitting it like like a feedback loop. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that's coming from right there. But it's not just showing people the end of the world. It's giving them the idea over and over it's and over again until they just accept time it. Bomb. And we're the ones that lit the fuse. We still have 58 days to try and change things, but nothing will work as long as that thing is still on. Young lady, I'm going to assume that your knowledge of tachyonic fusion is a little sketchy. Shutting it down is impossible. There is no off. I'm telling you what it's doing. Why don't you care? The only facts they won't challenge are the ones that keep the wheels greased and the dollars rolling in. But what if... What if there was a way of skipping the middleman and putting the critical news directly into everyone's head? The probability of widespread annihilation kept going up. The only way to stop it was to show it, to scare people straight. Because what reasonable human being wouldn't be galvanized by the potential destruction of everything they've ever known or loved? To save civilization, I would show its collapse. But how do you think this vision was received? How do you think people responded to the prospect of imminent doom? They gobbled it up like a chocolate eclair. They didn't fear their demise, they repackaged it. It can be enjoyed as video games, as TV shows, books, movies, the entire world wholeheartedly embraced the apocalypse and sprinted towards it with gleeful abandon. Meanwhile, your Earth was crumbling all around you. You've got simultaneous epidemics of obesity and starvation. Explain that one. Bees and butterflies start to disappear. The glaciers melt, algae blooms all around you. The coal mine canaries are dropping dead and you won't take the hint. In every moment, there is the possibility of a better future, but you people won't believe it. And because you won't believe it, you won't do what is necessary to make it a reality. So you dwell on this terrible future and you resign yourselves to it. For one reason, because that future doesn't ask anything of you today. strange time. Extraordinary events keep happening that undermine the stability of our world. Suicide bombs, waves of refugees, Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, even Brexit. Yet those in control seem unable to deal with them. No one has any vision of a different or a better kind of future. This film will tell the story of how we got to this strange place. It is about how over the past 40 years, politicians, financiers and technological utopians, rather than face up to the real complexities of the world, retreated. Instead, they constructed a simpler version of the world in order to hang on to power. And as this fake world grew, all of us went along with it because the simplicity was reassuring.
Even those who thought they were attacking the system, the radicals, the artists, the musicians, and our whole counterculture, actually became part of the trickery. Because they too had retreated into the make-believe world. Which is why their opposition has no effect, and nothing ever changes. But this retreat into a dream world allowed dark and destructive forces to fester and grow outside. Forces that are now returning to pierce the fragile surface of our carefully constructed fake world.